What, what, a, what a treat to be able to today celebrate that wonderful baptism, to come to the Lord's table here in just a little bit to commune with the Lord. He gives us, you know, these signs, these pictures in order to preach to us, to try to work the message of the gospel down into the hearts of us. Because he knows, right? He knows that for some of us, we're going to respond deeply to the words on a page. And others of us, we need something concrete to hold on to, right? Something physical, some picture or image that the Lord speaks to us. And that's part of why the prophets are so great to turn to in the Old Testament because they give us so many pictures, the pictures of the work of Christ. And we see that wonderfully today on the second Sunday of Advent where we explore the theme of peace. We see that the prophet Micah, we're talking 700 years before the Lord Jesus Christ was born, he's already speaking of Christ to us even though Micah himself wouldn't have known the name Jesus. He would have known Messiah. He would have known Christ, anointed one. He would know that he was looking for someone, but he wouldn't have known Jesus. He wouldn't have known Joseph and Mary. He wouldn't have had the sense of the fullness of that. And yet throughout history, God has now given him the eyes by the power of the Holy Spirit to communicate Christ to us 700 years before he comes. And now, 2,000 years removed from the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're looking back to Micah and we see beautifully and glorious how precise, how accurate and correct he is about the coming of the Lord Jesus. If that doesn't build your faith in the Bible, I don't know what will. That God speaks so eloquently and so clearly throughout its pages, years before things happen, that it builds up our faith and confidence as we approach this word together. So let's do just that. We're going to look at the first five verses of Micah chapter 5. This is God's word. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until that time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, we believe that, that your word will stand forever. We can trust it. In a world that has tons of words that shift underneath our feet, it is wonderful to stand today on a word that does not move and speaks even hundreds of years before what happens happens and does so with perfection. Today, this word is spoken to us in a completely trustworthy way. We long and desire now to hear it. We can't hear it in the way that we should unless you help us. Would you pour out the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit now and let this word jump off the page into our hearts? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I love studying the prophets, especially during Christmas and Easter and other times because there's always little tidbits that you get in the prophets that 
you, you wouldn't know to look for unless you had the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, unless you had the New Testament and you were able to read back in the Old Testament and see, oh, wow, a portrait of Jesus 700 years before he was born, given to us clearly from Micah, is like a little bit of a secret. It's like a little bit of a surprise. Some of you may read the Old Testament and think to yourself, I don't know how to make heads or tails of what's going on. Well, let me tell you, if you start with just the presupposition, the assumption that every text in the Scripture from Old to New Testament is speaking to you of Christ, and it has a way in which to align to the whole path of redemption, it'll begin to demystify some of the oddness that you'll sometimes see in the Old Testament. That's just a starting block. No extra charge for that piece right there. In in Micah chapter 5, we see that glimpse given to us. And it's like this secret. It's like this little surprise. You're coming along in a text that's speaking all about judgment. And boom, here at the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, we have this path of redemption. This great redeemer is going to come. And in the midst of it, Micah wants us to know, in the challenges that Israel's having in the day and time in which he's writing, in the challenges we're having in our own day and time, he wants us to know there's good news in the midst of the bad news. There's a reason to hope in the midst of the despair. In fact, there's a greatness that's being born in the midst of obscurity and insignificance. And he says he wants us to be invited into that story today. And a lot like the secrets that we all keep during Christmas time, like I I know you don't have to. I know you've got secrets underneath your bed right now. You've got secrets in the nooks and cranny of your attic and and in in your closet. They're called presents, in case you're wondering what I'm talking about. They're like gifts for those who you're going to surprise on Christmas Day. The prophets are a little bit like that. They've, they've tucked in their prophecy secrets and surprises about things that are going to happen long in the future that, that we're told in the New Testament that angels even long to look at and that the prophets wrote for a time that didn't even read their words during the time that they lived. Isn't that amazing? God was already making that provision in the future. Well, what we want to see today are three surprises, really three Advent surprises that are here for us in Micah chapter 5. And I kind of hinted at them there in the introduction. I want you to see first one surprise is that this text moves us to see that from smallness, God brings forth greatness. From smallness, God brings forth greatness. That's surprise number one. Surprise number two is from despair, God brings forth hope. From despair, God brings forth hope. And then the third surprise is from surrender, which kind of feels like giving up, God actually brings forth peace. God brings forth peace. From smallness, he brings forth greatness. From despair, he brings forth hope. From surrender, he brings forth peace. I want you to see these three things in Micah chapter 5. And you can see this first one, this first surprise. From smallness, he brings forth greatness right there in verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. It's the one that, if you don't know anything about Micah, you've probably heard this verse in some you know, Advent service or Christmas service at some point. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah. Okay, Bethlehem is that little town, right, in Judea. It means house of bread. That's what the word means. Of Ephrathah in Judea, or a place of fruitfulness, is what's being said here in the text. You, O Bethlehem, notice who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. You're a tiny little place. From you shall come forth for me one who is the ruler in Israel. One who is a great ruler shall come forth from this tiny little place in Bethlehem. Do you see it? 
from smallness, he's going to bring forth greatness. Now, you can see how odd this is in the world's way of thinking, right? Only great people come from great places, right? We all know that the movers, shakers in the world were born in New York, right? I mean, we all know that, right? They're all born in London or Tokyo or Paris or someplace like that, right? They've come through the right pedigree. They come through the right heritage. They've held from the right places. They don't come from map dot towns in flyover states, right? That's just not the way it works, except that Bethlehem is a map dot town in a flyover state. That's what it is. It's a place that you've never heard of. It's, it's podunk, you know, Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee. That's what it is. Notice this is where the greatest ruler of all of the universe comes forth. It's from Bethlehem. Now, the first thing I just want you to see about that is that the Lord's ways are not our ways, are they? The Lord's ways are not our ways. The world's always looking at the biggest and the best and the greatest and the flashiest and the achievements and the successes and the monies and the glitz and the, and the glamour, right? That's where our minds go. We even say, right, when uh, like a celebrity comes to know Christ and is converted and, and becomes a Christian, we even say to ourselves something like, now great good could happen in the world because this person's been saved. Well, why not your grandmother? You know, why is it you think that it's got to come through a great person already in order for Christ to have a platform? It's been known that he comes through obscurity, comes from no-name people like Joseph and Mary. Do you know who their parents are? No, nobody does, right? They come from seemingly nowhere. And it's here where breaking in is the greatest turn in the redemptive history of the whole universe. Right here, from smallness, greatness is being brought forth. And Paul says that we should expect this. When he writes his letter to the church at Corinth, he says, Not many of you were wise, speaking of the congregation members there in Corinth, not many of you were powerful according to worldly standards. And they're like, hey, hold on here, you know. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Hmm. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Hmm. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Oswald Chambers said years ago that God decided to build his kingdom on the weakest link imaginable, a baby. Right? It's just kind of remarkable that God's power is so great that he doesn't need our power to help out. And so he actually chooses the things that are weakest to show us how strong he is. Paul tells us why he does that. He says, so that when we boast, we will boast in the Lord. You know our tendency, isn't it? If we've done something great, and if the, Lord, if the Lord's done something great with a great person, we say, well, of course, they're a great person. And we give, in our, even in our minds, a, a bit of the credit to the individual, don't we? We, that's what we think, right? Great person comes to know the Lord. Celebrity comes to know the Lord. Great things will now happen. And it's because we think that that's how God's kingdom works. What this is actually showing us is that God uses the weak and insignificant, the obscure and the out of the way, the marginalized of what's out there in order that when he does something amazing with it, everyone will look at it and say, there's no way man was involved. This is of the Lord. He will get all the glory for it. Now, I hope that gives you actually great encouragement because, listen, I know some of your backgrounds. And um, what that means 
is that 1 Corinthians chapter 1 could be true for you and me. Not many of us in this room were wise, right? Let's be honest. Not many of us are powerful. Many of us have tried to be wise and powerful, and yeah, you see where it's gotten us. And so we have Christ and the hope of Christ that, guess what? Because we can boast in what's been done from the seemingly insignificant to the great in him, God can actually use us, seemingly insignificant, to actually accomplish much in the kingdom of God. Now, much may not look like it ends up on the evening news. In fact, it's probably a good plan to try not to end up on the evening news, but, but it probably doesn't mean that it makes the headlines. It, it probably means that through simple acts of hospitality and love and care, through simple actions of caring for the poor, for laboring for justice and good in the world, for sharing the gospel, for the small ways in which simple fidelities are enacted, that God is moving and spreading his kingdom in and through you. It's probably not going to be the big things. It's going to probably be the small things. You know, I was at a beach house a year or two ago, and they had one of those signs. You know, they always have those beachy signs, right, when you go to the beach house. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? And, and this was like a quote, though, that could have gone anywhere. But it just said, be sure to soak up the little things, because in the end, you'll know that all the big things were the little things, right? And in many ways, there is a gospel truth right there, right? That right here in little Bethlehem, the greatest thing is happening. God brings forth greatness from smallness. But I want you to see, secondly, that God brings forth hope out of despair. Do you notice how this text began? You know something probably about Micah 5, like probably the verse I just quoted about Bethlehem. But notice that we're in the midst of like a wartime prophecy. Notice how it began. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. That's not good news. Like here Micah is prophesying the realization that a credible war is going to take place against the people of Israel. Um, This city, O daughter of troops, is Jerusalem. It's personified as a daughter or as a lady here. And notice it's now a city that's only described by warfare, described as troops. Everybody's become a part of this military initiative. So it's, it's complete in the sense of that. And what we see is they're a bullseye in the eye of their enemy. Um, Now, the question you're probably wondering too is like, well, what's the situation here in Micah chapter 5? And actually the scholars debate this a little bit because it actually could be several different time periods. So when Micah's writing 700 years before Christ, Hezekiah is actually king on the throne at the time and Assyria is the great um, superpower. And in 701, Sennacherib actually comes in, who's the king of Assyria at the time, comes in to invade there in in Jerusalem. And some see this invasion as that because it's Micah's time period. It's the time in which Micah lives. In fact, if you were to turn at the beginning of the book of Micah to Micah 1.1, you'd see the name Hezekiah is actually mentioned. Ahaz and and, uh, Hezekiah. That's the kingship that... that, um, that Micah was in. But for a variety of reasons, though that may be hinted at here, it's not really the focus of the prophecy. The prophecy is really focusing on a much bigger invasion that's going to come at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the great ruler in Babylon in 586 and 587. You'll remember that that's the point in time in which all the people of Israel were taken out of the promised land, taken into captive and exile in Babylon, and Jerusalem was utterly destroyed and the temple, we're told, was completely, completely undone. Not one stone was even left upon another. A tremendous day of darkness and despair is what Micah's talking about. 
And notice that in the moment where the promised land is going to be lost, 150 years probably from about when Mike is writing, that the city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The, temp- the Solomonic temple is going to be no more. And that the Davidic line, the kingly line, is going to be cut off. Like all of the legacy of King David is going to be lost. Zedekiah, who's the king during the time that Nebuchadnezzar comes in, his sons are actually murdered in front of his eyes. They're executed in front of his eyes. And then, just to add insult to injury, they gouged out Zedekiah's eyes so that the last thing he would see would be the end of the Davidic line. That's how, that's how dark Nebuchadnezzar was, right? That was the moment. Okay, all right, so now you're feeling it, right? You're feeling the darkness and the despair of the moment. They don't know that's going to happen yet. I'm giving you history, but to them that's future as the time that they're reading it. That's how dark this moment is. It's in that moment they would have been asking what you've probably asked in moments of trauma and moments of loss and of crisis. Where is God and has his promises failed? That would have been what was on their mind and on their heart. They would have been a people in utter despair. And it's in that moment where hope emerges. Notice that the prophecy there in verse 4 says, it's in that moment that a ruler will come forth in Israel who shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Isn't that an amazing promise in the midst of despair? Now, historically, and we won't spend time on this, (laughs) there was actually leaders in Israel that brought the people of Israel back into the land of promise. They ultimately rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the walls of the city of Jerusalem. That's a history that you can read about in Nehemiah and Ezra. But what we find out is that that is not ultimately the ruler that Mike is talking about. That's not ultimately the return that he's focused on. He's returned on this messianic leader who's going to come into the distant future. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that because of the language that's used here. The whole text is rooted in the story of David, right? Some of you, I've already seen that because it's been triggered in the reading of the text. But the mention of Bethlehem, if any mention of Bethlehem, immediately the hearers in Israel in this day would have gone to David. That's where their mind would have gone. Nothing good has come out of Bethlehem since the time of David. He was a Bethlehemite. He was one who was from there. And so he, when it says that this ruler is going to come out of Bethlehem, it's saying someone like unto the heritage of David, someone through the line of David is going to come. Now, do you remember? Why did Joseph and Mary make their way to Bethlehem? Because Joseph was of the line and the lineage of David. Do you remember that? All right. You remember that Luke chapter 2? You're probably going to read it before the month is out. I'm just going to guess. It's probably going to happen. So why, did, why is Bethlehem here triggering? Well, it takes us back to the story uh, right there in, in, in Samuel, right? When, the, when, the, when, when Samuel comes to anoint the next king of Israel, he's sent to Jesse, isn't he? And Jesse, who lives in the outskirts of Bethlehem, is there with his sons. And what does he do? He brings out all of his sons and parades them before Samuel. And where is, Je- where is David, this youngest son? Well, he's not even invited to the party. Because everybody knows that these strapping young men who are coming before Samuel are for sure going to be one of them, the next king of Israel. Because, right, the world looks at the outward appearance. But God had already made a man after his own heart. And his name was David. And where was he? Oh, yeah. 
He was keeping sheep. How's this ruler described? I don't, I don't remember. Y'all, y'all remind me. Oh, wait, verse four. He shall stand and shepherd his flock. Oh, right. So not only do we have a mention of Bethlehem and shepherding, which would have gone back to David, we're now getting a picture of the kind of ruler this is. This is someone who will be a man after God's own heart in the fullest sense of the word. Even God himself is going to come. And he is going to rule and reign over his people. The beautiful picture here is that in the midst of despair, in the midst of terrible news, hope emerges. God brings forth the sign and the picture, the testimony and the prophecy that a great king will arise. Isn't it interesting that in the small things of our lives, the Lord is often doing the great things. In the insignificant places, he's bringing forth the greatness. And isn't it been true, just to test your own experience, that the times that you remember where where the needle has moved in your growth in grace, where the, the Lord has become real to you and the meaningfulness of his grace and his love has overwhelmed and captivated your heart. Hasn't it been on the hills of some crisis? It has, hasn't it? I'll, you might say, how did he know that? I read my Bible. I'm not a prophet or a son of the prophet. I just also know that that's true for me. That the Lord has done the greatest work, hasn't he? And he brought forth the deepest of hopes in the midst of places of despair. He wants us to constantly be reminded of the fact that this is a work that he does, not a work that we can do. He often brings us low in order that the only place we can look is up. I wonder how that might be landing for you. You know, the holidays can be a happy time. It can be a really sad time. I know for me, one of the things that rises up during the holidays is people who aren't around me anymore, who once were. Um, There are are people I miss. There are experiences that I look back on that aren't no more. And there's a sadness that's there. And in the midst of that sadness, do you know what I'm forced to do? Not do I easily do this, but I'm forced to do I go to the Word and I remember how God has been faithful through the years to His people in just those moments. I remember stories that you've told me of how the Lord's been faithful in your life through those moments. And it becomes a ministry to me. And it gives me the perspective that I know is true that Micah had to give to the people of Israel at the point in time at which they were in and that we need to hear afresh right now is that God brings forth hope in the midst of despair. He's done it over and over and over again. And no matter where you are in the midst of that story, he won't leave you in the darkness of the night. The morning is coming and Christ will shine on you. Now, not only do we see that he brings forth greatness out of smallness, not only does he bring hope out of despair, we find that he also brings peace out of surrender. You know, Micah delivered this message at a point when life was really good in Israel, right? We were just talking about the devastation that's coming, right? This is a prophet. He's foretelling what's coming. But life was really good in Israel when Micah was speaking. At the point in which he was speaking during Hezekiah's reign, life was awesome. I mean, people were rich and they had money and they had houses and they had lands and they had food and, and, and all of the good things. I mean, they lived in Williamson County, right? 
in a gated community. They could, they could have whatever it is that they wanted. They were, they were in a really good place when Micah was giving these words, which interestingly, and this is what makes right, even the challenge of ministry in our own day and time in the context of where we're at. One of the hard things, do you find this? Sometimes it's really hard to receive the warnings from the Lord in his scriptures, especially regarding judgment especially regarding future disaster or devastation that may be coming because we've kind of fallen asleep in prosperity. We've been lulled asleep and numbed to sleep by all the stuff we have. That's really what was going on with Israel at the point in time which Micah is, is preaching. They didn't listen to him. In fact, one of the most haunting moments is Micah 2.6 where they actually respond. Now, you could, don't respond to me this way, but they responded to Micah this way. They literally said, do not preach. Do not preach. Disgrace will not overtake us. Now, I'm going to tell you, if you start talking back to me, I'm not going to know what to do. It's going to be really awkward. It's going to be really weird. But that's exactly how they responded to his message, right? Do not preach to us. Disgrace is not going to overtake us. What are you talking about? Look around, Micah. Look around. And 150 years later, you look around and nothing is there. It's difficult sometimes to hear the warnings of Scripture when we're falling asleep in prosperity. Notice in your life and in the history of your life that your greatest moments of growth and faith haven't come when you've been comfortable. Just note it. I'm not saying comfortable's not great. I'm not saying comfortable's not that is essentially wrong. No. I'm just saying it's hard to keep your eye on the ball. And you're focused spiritually in your lazy boy. It just is. Now that's why sometimes the Lord brings strokes of difficulty into our life. is because he wants to wake us up. And just know that when he does that, it's not because he's mean. It's because he loves you. He doesn't want you to fall prey like the people in Micah's day. Who at that point in time didn't see Nebuchadnezzar coming. Babylon wasn't even really a big deal. It was a... Not a big nation at the time. Assyria was the problem. But now, 150 years later, he's going to come knocking on, the, knocking on the door. He's going to come knocking down the door. And the people are going to be disgraced. Do not preach to us. Disgrace will not overtake us. Famous last words. The people in Micah's day did fall. Jerusalem was lost. The temple was lost. The promised land was lost. And they were carried off into exile. That's where we get the wonderful stories of, of Daniel and uh, the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and those great stories that you remember uh, in, in those uh, sections of the Old Testament prophets. God was at work even in exile, right? He had not given up on them. He was making plans for the future fulfillment of redemption. But these people were taken by surprise, and one of the things that, uh, you know, some surprises can be great. Other surprises are, are, are not so great, right? Like the surprises that are going to happen on, on you know, Christmas morning when you open up after you come to church on Christmas morning. And then you open up your, your gifts and you're surprised, right, uh, by what's there and it's a perfect gift. Isn't that a great surprise? Then you get those surprises like, you know, like when my oldest daughter calls and she's like had a wreck. That's a bad surprise, like you don't want to get that call, right? Or whatever, you know, surprises come in different shades and, and colors. 
You don't want to be surprised at Christ's second coming, you see. You don't want to be surprised in the wrong way at Christ's second coming. You know, we, this is why last week I said, are you, you ready for Christ's return? Because the Advent season is about remembering his first Advent, but it's about preparing your heart for his second coming. It's usually typically a season of repentance in the life of the church. And I said, are you ready for his second coming? And some of you very, very nicely like smiled and nodded. And I said, are you sure? Are you sure? Do you know what it means when he returns? Do you know what side of things, as it were, in the mix of what Christ will bring will actually happen. Do you see in Revelation chapter 6, one of the sermons I heard a few years ago just kind of changed my life was from Revelation chapter 6 and, it, and it, it haunts me in a great way. It's a section where John says that future, the great judgment when it comes, it'll come, he describes it as, a, as an earthquake as the sun turning to black, as stars falling from the sky, as mountains being removed and islands being overcome. Now, if you read that, what's called apocalyptic language, this almost hyperbole or exaggerated destruction and disaster language, if you, as you read that in Revelation chapter 6, some of you know that that's language that's borrowed from the Old Testament, right? It's not brand new. The, John's actually pulling that language through to describe other apocalyptic events. It's as if to say the whole world is coming apart at the seems. And it's vividly trying to give you a description of the fact that this is beyond description, the disaster that is coming when the second coming arises. And notice what it says. This is verses 15 to 17 of Revelation 6. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful. And you're like, okay, good. They, they got it coming to them. That's great. Also the slave and the free, like all groups here hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of wrath has come. Who can stand? Let that sit on you. Preach not to us, preacher. Disgrace will not come. Right? How real is that to you? How, how, how real is that to you? The, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment. Believer and unbeliever alike, even this room, I hope that something of a shudder comes through your soul. These words are meant to sober us. Advent is meant to sober us. For some of us in this room, you may be saying to yourself, but Nate, why would you press into me like that? I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'm not trying to dismantle your assurance. That's for sure. But I'm also trying to check and make sure it's not presumption. Do you know the people in Micah's day went to church on Sunday morning? Took communion. They were baptized. Now, of course, none of those things are exactly true, right? They were circumcised. They went to the temple. They sacrificed. But what I'm trying to say is they were church-going Middle Tennessee folk. Is what they were. And they were taken by surprise. And not because they weren't told, but because they were asleep spiritually. That's different. 
They rejected God's word and the reality of judgment. And I think in part because we just don't want to believe it. Part of it, we just don't want to believe it. We don't want to think about it. Denial is an easier path. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is that death is coming if the judgment is not coming first. You will not outmaneuver the great judgment. It just won't happen. It's coming. And either you're going to be at that day crying out, rocks and mountains fall on us to protect me from the wrath of him who is seated on the throne. Or you're going to be one who has surrendered your life totally to the Lord Jesus Christ. And know that the rocks and the mountains fell on him for you. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when your sins are recounted, and every idle word is brought to judgment, and the secrets in the closet of your soul even now are revealed, Jesus will stand and will say, my blood has covered this one. And you will take comfort in the Lamb of God. Not until you surrender. Not until you release and relinquish your your hold on your own life into Christ. Now that's true for the first time, the moment we come to know Christ for the first time. But friends, that's true every day of your life. I don't care who it is you are, believer or unbeliever in here. We all have a control issue. Every single one of us wants to control our outcomes. We want to make our decisions. We want to keep ourselves from discomfort and difficulty. And you know what? None of us are successful. But it doesn't keep us from trying. Until we're outsmarted by death. And by a coming judgment. And the only one who's truly smart in those moments is the one who's given up all allegiance to King Jesus. Who's decided, I will relinquish the kingship of my own life. I will release my own life and surrender it into Christ's life. I want him to rule over me. I want him to save me. I want my life to be conformed into his image. I want to find that freedom is found within his words and his way. Only that person on the day of judgment will know what it's like to rest in Jesus as the wrath of God comes. Do you know Micah ends his wonderful, tremendous prophecy with the words of incredible assurance. We sometimes use them actually as an assurance here. He says this in Micah 7, 18 through 19. Who is like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever. He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. Do you believe that? That he'll have compassion on you. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And I wonder what sins right now are coming to mind and heart for you. I wonder which keep you away from a close relationship with the Lord. I wonder what they are. And the Lord wants you to know is bring those out and surrender them to him. They're no match for his grace. Oh, but you don't know the cost that it will, it will bear with my wife. You don't know what cost it will bear with my husband or my family or my job or my workplace. Nothing compared to the eternal cost 
nothing compared to the eternal cost. It is the path of freedom. It is the way forward. It is the fire that will bring forth the gold. And that is for believer and unbeliever alike. That today, all of us at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, surrendering ourselves to Him, may find our peace. Father, we do pray for that peace. Lord, unless uh, you do this work in our hearts, we will continue to hold on to all the things that we were holding on coming in. But it could be today that we release them to you. It could be today that some of us who have been playing games with you will today step into the truth. And they will find afresh, or for the first time, that your love and grace It's enough. This is our prayer. Come and move about us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.